Good morning. For those that are joining us online now, I know there's a lot of travel happening this weekend, so good to be with you as well. Love for you now to take our Bibles, and together we are turning to Psalm 145. And as you're turning there, what's going to immediately capture your attention this morning is that this is devoted to uh, the idea of it being a song of praise of David. This is the only psalm titled A Song of Praise of David found in the 150 Psalms. It's interesting. It's because this is going to serve as a natural segue into Psalms 146 through Psalm 150, each of which will begin as well as end with the idea we are to praise the Lord. They are known then as the Praise the Lord selection, uh, the ending of the Psalms. The second thing I want to notice about this is that, and it doesn't appear obviously in the English, is that in the Hebrew, uh, each verse goes according to the Hebrew alphabet. It's called an acrostic psalm, which means that this, of course, then is the last acrostic psalm that you're going to find in the Psalms. And so, thirdly, and it's obvious, this is the last Davidic psalm. So now, what they're going to do at this point, and they've been drawing upon all the various compositions that David has penned regarding his, his praise to God, this is David's finale, which makes you stop and wonder then, why? Why would they choose this as the finale? And what is it in particular now that about David's composition that would cause you, and it caused me to say, in many ways, that this is the pinnacle of David's life story is being chronicled here and the way in which he relates to God. So the question, of course, is if you were breathing your final breath, what would be the last song that would be sung? in your presence as you're about to go home and be with the Lord. A song of praise of David. And this morning we'll cover verses 1 down through verse 13. And here we are told that David now, penning his thoughts, offers this worship. I will extol you, my God, and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds 
and I will declare your greatness. They shall put forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And then in parenthesis, the Lord is faithful in all his works, and kind in all his works. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And now, our Father, what we want to do is to explore these verses you've given us. We thank you for the opportunities to worship you. The prior service, this and for those that are tracking online. We want the sense of your presence now, Father, to be fully felt and known. There's something extraordinarily powerful, life-giving, about knowing we are entering into your presence. Speak to our hearts. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these woes. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was an Evangelical Free Church of America conference, convention, if you will, being held in California. I had some responsibilities on the platform. So hopped on a plane out of Hartford, Connecticut, made my way to California, LA area. Took my seat in the first of the gatherings and thousands present. There was a man and a woman in particular that stand out to me because they made their way toward the front and they wanted to take a seat as close as they could to the platform. And so they positioned themselves next to me. But it was very clear that he was hurting. Didn't know why. Is it physical? Was there something in their family? Is it job related? I don't know. All I know was this man was really weighed down. And I was keeping an eye on him out of the corner of my eye. His wife turned to him, are you okay? You gonna make it? Are you okay? And he just kind of went like this, and with a look of despair on his face. When I retook my seat, we reached a point where it was time for a closing song, and Jack Hayford 
moved onto the platform. And there, the song that he had composed that now is in hymn books, the song he composed, which is sung around the world, was now sung in this vast gathering. As I watched as arms began to be lifted up, majesty, worship his majesty, Unto Jesus be our glory and honor and praise. Majesty, kingdom authority, flow from his throne unto his own, his anthem raise. As we sang, I noticed that this man began slowly to lift his arms. Have you ever noticed that as the arms begin to lift, the burdens begin to shift? As the arms are moving upward, it seems like the burdens are heading downward. Something was happening. What I want to do with you is to take a few moments here and reflect upon a passage that has been dubbed the majesty of God passage. And when you're devoted to understanding the majesty of God, you begin to put in proper perspective what is significant and what is insignificant. There was nothing in the message that night that dealt with five steps to reduce your burdens, three steps to reduce your anxieties, four steps to be able to seek out medical attention. No, the passage that night was devoted to the majesty of God. The song that closed was devoted to the majesty of God. And what we're about to do is to explore the majesty of God in 13 verses. There are two significant witnesses to God's majesty, to God's greatness that flow out of these verses. And the first is out of verse 1, down through verse 7. We're going to phrase it like this. As you and I, as we reflect upon the majesty of God, I want to begin here. I want to begin by noting with you the generational witness of our Lord's greatness. And of course, we're going to pick up on that particularly in verse 4, where one generation should commend your works to another. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. You start now with verse 1, and what I want you to see here at the very onset is how he begins this one, David, in what might very well be the last song of his life. I will extol you, my God and King. David is not about to recount his own achievements, his own personal experiences the highs and lows of his life. But instead, what you and I find here at this point is that this one of royalty 
is now going to acknowledge the one who has cosmic royalty and says, I will stole you. Notice how personal now. My God and King. I agree with A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. History of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and humankind's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. David, in his last song, is lifting up the majesty of God as the one known as King of Israel. I will still you, my God. And he goes on to say, my King. Now, when you and I were obviously months and months and months back pondering the significance of the passing of Queen Elizabeth, a wise commentator was recalling a prior royal figure, Queen Victoria, and described a particular situation where a pastor speaking in Windsor had taught on the second coming of Christ. And after the message, the queen spoke to him on the topic which he had chosen. And she had said, oh, how I wish that the Lord might come during my lifetime, said Queen Victoria. Why, asked the pastor, and I've mocked this, why does your majesty feel this way to this degree. Oh, answered the queen. I would so love to lay my crown at his feet. She understood ultimate majesty. When you and I enter into a hospital room, we are representatives of his majesty. When you and I are entering into the classroom, we're entering into a setting where we represent his majesty. And when you are doing that, what happens is this. You are bringing to a higher level the tension of significance versus insignificance. At that point, you are beginning to focus attention on who matters, what matters, who matters most, what matters most. And when you and I do that, all of a sudden we find that the burdens of life begin to slide. as the arms of our worship begin to rise. As I noted this in this gentleman standing next to me in California, 
where all of a sudden something was happening as he was singing majesty. Not addressing that message and that worship experience, anything pertaining to how to deal with anxiety, how to address matters of physical illness. It was solely focused on God, but something was transforming the entire experience of the people at that moment because it was God-focused. I will extol you, my God, I'm king, cries David. Bless your name forever and ever. And now I want you to see the poetic connection between the forever and ever verse 1 with the day by day of verse 2. It's meant this way. And so now you pull together the thought processes and David wisely and effectively pens every day Day by day, I will bless you. How many days do you have left, David? But every day, I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And now he takes the day by day and matches the forever and ever and ties together verse 1 with verse 2. And you and I are beginning to get a greater sense of the majesty of God coming from the lips of the king of Israel. You know the story. Professor of older Princeton, not new Princeton, old Princeton, if you will, theological seminary. His name is Robert Dick Wilson. And one of his students came back to speak in Miller Chapel 12 years after he graduated. By now, an elderly man, Dr. Wilson, came and sat near the front. It's one of his students, former, now a pastor. At the close of the meeting, the old professor came up to his former student, cocked his head to one side, as was typical of him, extended his hand and said, if you come back, Again, I will not come to hear you speak. I only come once. And the young pastor was taken aback. But then he came on to say this elderly professor of Old Testament. I am glad that you are a, a big godder. When my boys come back, I want to find out if they are big godders or little godders. And then I will know what their ministry will be like, what their churches will be like. He went on. Some men, some people have a little god, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't seem to do any miracles in their estimation. He can't seem to take care of the inspiration, transmission of the scriptures in their eyes. Doesn't seem to intervene on behalf of his people. They've got a little God, and the professor said, I call them little godders. But then, but then, there are those who have a great God. He speaks, it's done. He commands, it happens. 
He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. And then Dr. Wilson leaned forward and said, You have a great God. God will bless your ministry. And he paused, smiled, and said, God bless you, and turned and walked away. How we handle the tension between significance and insignificance shows itself in how weighed down our shoulders are by the burdens of life. But when the Huns begin to rise, the burdens begin to slide. As we're giving all glory to God, we begin to put life in proper perspective. And out of all this, you pull together the tension between the day by day with the forever and ever of verses 1 and 2. And what do you do with it? You get to verse 3. And in verse 3, you state it to your soul and to those around you. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. During the Billy Graham crusade of 1957, it's called the Great Madison Square Garden Crusade that in some ways, along with a prior L.A. crusade, put the Graham Ministries on the map globally. The choir sang how great thou art 99 times over the course of the crusade. Something significant was happening. They had encountered greatness. And when God is viewed as great, the issues of life become increasingly insignificant. When you have put God in proper perspective, you put your problems in proper proportion. And when you are able to embrace that idea, then you are able to evangelistically, whether it be with your co-workers, with your children, the grandchildren, Embrace what comes out of verse 4 that flows then out of verse 3. One precedes the other. Out of this then, you look relationally. You look for opportunities to be able to communicate the principles of verse 4. Where one generation shall commend your works to another. And shall declare your mighty acts. When the Israelites made their way out of Egypt and made their way through the Red Sea and saw how the supposed majesty of Pharaoh and his troops were drowned in the waters and that they were preserved and God was honored. In Exodus 15, 7, you and I are told, in the greatness of your majesty, 
You threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like, like stubble. Later, David would urge his generation to, quote, declare God's glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. And I've mocked it. Splendor and majesty are before him. And not to be outdone, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God revealed to David the idea of a perpetual, eternal, everlasting dynasty, you and I know that went right to and through Jesus Christ. We're told that what has taken place here is that God has provided David an understanding of the mighty acts of God, a dynasty kingdom, a throne forever. It puts in proper perspective then the Islamic jihadists when they crashed and the hijacked American United Airplanes into the World Trade Center in New York City, Pentagon, and of course in a field in Pennsylvania on 9-11-2001 where their cry was, Allah Akbar, Allah is great. But then there's Elihu, who in his hurting moments, Job's hurting moments, Elihu would declare to Job, good comes in awesome majesty. And all of a sudden, the problems of life get put in proper perspective. For you see, evangelistically, in your homes and in your relationships, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And I'm watching as the man's shoulders just begin to relax as he's pondering the majesty of God. But David's not done. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Even at that point in David's life, he's still meditating on God's works. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. Now, David still wants to speak on behalf of God's greatness, and notice how he phrases it. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. and shall sing aloud shall sing aloud for your righteousness. And you're beginning to pour it together. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And then I'm, it happens, heading down 43, up 43, to get to my office. And I hear, I hear Jen Johnson and she's singing, and she's singing of God. And this particular point, I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. 
From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. And all my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. And as David now, as he is now offering us the epitome of his praise in his final selection and composition, challenges us that you and I, as we reflect upon the majesty of God, watch how your shoulders relax as you note the generational witness of our Lord's of our Lord's greatness. But then you tie it together because you move from what I will call thinking microscopically, the nuclear family, to now macroscopically, and you're dealing with the international realm. Because here's the other witness out of 8 through 13, that is you and I, as we reflect upon the majesty of God, note Furthermore, the international witness of our Lord's greatness. And so beginning in verse 8, he says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is made over all that he has made. And he is struck with the fact that he can now connect the greatness of God to the grace of God and sees greatness in grace. G. Campbell Morgan did that. You know the story, approached by a former soldier who said he'd give anything to believe that God would forgive sins, but I just can't believe he'll forgive me if I just turn to him, it's just too cheap. Wisely, Dr. Morgan said, you were working in the mine today. How did you get out of the pit? The former soldier answered, the way I usually do, I, I got into the cage, was pulled to the top. How much did you pay to come out of the pit, I asked. I didn't pay anything, he said. Well, weren't you afraid to trust yourself to that cage? Wasn't it too cheap? And the man said, oh, it was cheap to me, but it cost the company tons of money to sink that shaft. And then Dr. Morgan tells us the man saw the light, that it was the infinite price paid by the Son of God for our salvation, which comes to us by grace through faith and not by anything that we can do and now you will find the greatness of grace where we read the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, hesed, love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he's made. And now, and now you pick up some speed. You're in verse 10. You're tracking as you take it down to verse, to verse 13. 
It's almost as if David now is reaching the pinnacle. He's climbing the mountain. Is this it? Are these the final words of his final song? All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, not David's, and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. He is so God-conscious, not self-conscious, and you will find that when people are struggling, they are so overly self-conscious, and what they need is a heavy dose of becoming God-conscious. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He's almost recounting 2 Samuel 7 at this point. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. And now what he has done is he ponders the majesty of God. He pulls together the generational witness of one through seven with the international witness of God's greatness through 13. And through it all, the focus is upon cosmic majesty as all of a sudden you will find that the burdens of life begin to shift off your shoulders when you begin to grasp the significance of who God is in comparison to the insignificance of so much else in life. And it took the minstrels to understand it. Because the story is told that in a far country lived a band of minstrels who traveled from town to town presenting music to make a living, they had not been doing well. Times were hard, little money for the common folk to come to hear them. Though the fee was small, attendance was falling off. One evening, the group met to discuss the situation. And one said, I see no reason even open tonight to make things even worse. It's starting to snow. Who's going to come out on a night like tonight? I agree, said another. What are we to do? There's going to be so few. And how can anyone do his best when there's so few? But then they turn to, to the older one in the group and ask him, what do you think? And the man looks straight at the group. I know you're discouraged. I am too. But we have a responsibility to those who would come. We will go on. And we'll do the best job to which we are capable. It's not the fault of those who come out that others do not. They should not be punished with less than the best that we can give. And so heartened by these words, they went out and they performed and they never did it better. And when the show was over and the small audience was gone, the elderly man called the group to him. And in his hand was a note handed to him by one of the audience just before the doors closed. Listen to this, my friends, he said, and there was something electric in his voice that stopped them in their tracks. When slowly the older musician read, listen to this, this note placed in my hands, quote, thank you, for a beautiful performance, unquote. It was signed simply, Your Majesty.
your king. And as we finished singing and Jack Hayford walked away, the man who was standing next to me turned to his wife and she said, are you okay? To which she answered, I'm more than okay. I am great. Why? He had encountered the greatness of God, which puts everything, everything, in proper perspective. Let's stand together. And now, Father, we thank you for all those who invested time in the ministry fair and pray that afterwards that um, it will be highly impactful. But now what we pray at this moment is that you take these words of these 13 verses of this finale of David's composition, apply it to our life situation and where the insignificant for some reason has taken on such significance, we view it as great. May we leave now with proper perspective. God is great. And now everything is put back in proper order. And for this, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.